five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. on the internet so i have no idea if i'm streaming live or not it says i'm streaming live let me just check uh let me check the website just to make sure i had it's kind of a weird setup this morning let's see what we have here oh yeah i'm there i'm there you're there we're there we're all together what's going on robert phoenix here broadcast you live from the Hill Country with uh, my buddy. You know who he is. He's the astrological cat. And then some. Jasper, have you ever had sexual healing? I don't think he's had sexual healing per se. But Jasper um, is is fond of a certain part of the female anatomy above the belly button. I've seen him a number, number of times position himself in that very uh, nurturing and comforting area. Yes. He's a titty cat. I have to say that. I know. Is that where you get your sexual healing? Huh? Since you have no family jewels. Uh, Marvin Gaye there. <laughs> I'm not sure why I played that song. I think it's because it was Marvin Gaye's birthday. He's an Aries. And <clears throat> yeah, I know. It's so funny because he sings that song like an Aries, right? He says, sexual healing is good for me. It's not as good for you or it's good for us. It's good for me. When I get that feeling, I got, I need sexual healing because it's good for me. If it's good for me, it'd be good for you. That is your typical Aries sentiment in some ways. And that's done right at the end of Marvin Gaye's life, career in life. I think it's his last big hit. And maybe I think he recorded that record, Midnight Love, in I think it's in Holland or someplace like that. He was not in the United States, although he shot that video. It looks like he shot that video in LA or something because he, he had the end he goes off into that limo and it's got california plates and just a strange legacy and a strange story of a very very talented man who was shot by his father there are a number of stories around that there was one story i've talked about this before where his father supposedly knew about marvin gay and the illuminati and the sacrifice that marvin gay uh, was about was about to be asked to do and his father supposedly shot him out of compassion 
But then the other side of that is that Marvin Gaye was uh, constantly badgered and uh, abused. When I say abused, knocked around, certainly emotionally, psychologically, by his father. His father was a, a minister. And he was kind of like, you know, the Marvin Gaye of his choir and his church. You know, he, he was a singer and he led the choir. So he was a star, but Marvin Gaye became a bigger star than he did. And he rejected his <clears throat> um, religious upbringing. So there's, there's also that part of the story. So, so his end game is very weird. And I, I think he's actually living at home with his parents also, which is super strange. And somebody who was incredibly successful and made probably one of the greatest albums of all time and what's going on. Uh, it's, it's a very strange end game for Marvin Gaye, but he did manage to squeeze out one final hit before he hit the road. Okay. So we're here with Jasper and uh, we're here to try to put the pieces of the world back together again in the best way that we can. And the uh, title of today's show is the future past. So we're going to look at the past a little bit. Um, and we're also going to do our best to try to stake a claim into the future. And these are based on some of the thoughts that I've been, that I've been having uh, around how to solve this mess that we're in. I think, first of all, we need more Jaspers. We definitely need more Jaspers. Jaspers are the ambassadors of hope. If every household had a Jasper, we would be better off, I think. I wish I could clone him and just have this Jasper model. Just have, have a Jasper. How could the world not be better if we had a Jasper? Look at him. He's holding my hand. He says, yes, you're right. You're right. Okay, enough screen time for you. So we're going to get into the past a little bit. It, it, after last night's show, where I talked about Joe Stalin, I, I watched a, a, an hour-long documentary on Stalin because he, in a lot of ways, he's one of the most singularly fascinating people in the 20th century, even though he's an, you know, an absolute um, sociopath. And he really, if I tell you, I'll tell you, Martin Scorsese, missed out on a great opportunity to make a film about young Joe Stalin and cast Robert De Niro because De Niro had the facial makeup of being able to portray Stalin. And he also has that kind of criminal gene in him. Like De Niro's got that Sicilian criminal gene in him where he could actually pull that off because that's what, that's what Stalin was. You know, he was, and speaking of abused, he was totally abused by his father. His father was an alcoholic and uh, Stalin had uh, two other brothers. Both of them had died and he was the only child left. His mother was, a uh, was Orthodox and she was knocked around by the old man, him and Joe Stalin, her and Joe Stalin were knocked around by the old man. And they eventually wound up leaving and getting uh, um, kind of shelter in a new place in a new town. And she took care of other people's houses to make money. And, uh, and, and he actually was pretty smart. Once, once he got into school, he moved up the ranks and was 
you can see it in his chart. I mean, he has a Mercury and Capricorn, um, trying Uranus, and he also has a trying Neptune. So he's pretty, he was, he's not dumb, right? So you look at these people who were in the mix he's, and he just, he, he stopped his education. I think around, I don't know, probably somewhere like in the middle of what we would call high school, like maybe a junior. And he became a, an atheist and he denounced the church. He's a Sagittarian. And apparently he had a, a an accident in a uh, with a wagon and mangled his left arm. So, so Stalin had a left arm that was kind of deformed. You never see him in short sleeve shirts. None of those guys wear short sleeve shirts. Could be hundred degrees out. They're wearing those fucking long tunics, and they would wear long sleeve shirts if it was hot out. Anyway, um, and he, he you know, he's from Georgia. He's a Georgian, and he he was. His involvement with the with the Communist Party, the Bolsheviks. He loved the Bolsheviks because they were hardliners. They were violent. He liked that. He was violent. He had that Mars and Scorpio Pluto opposition. He had no problem being violent. So he would start. He was an agitator, and he would start strikes and he would agitate. That's that's he was great at it. And his idols, his idol was Karl Marx, but because the the uh, the government in Russia, which would be uh, the Tsar Nicholas, they knew that he was an agitator, so they would ship him out to uh, Siberia. He went to Siberia at least twice. Uh, one time, it was during the uh, the beginning of the, it was the October, it was in February, it was in February, I think it was 2015, right, when everything starts to go, you know, go nuts uh, in St. Petersburg. And he's not there, but eventually he shows up and he becomes, he was the enforcer. That's who Joe Stalin was. He was, he was, uh, Lenin's enforcer. He was, he was his muscle and he had no problem. Now, the other guy that's in the mix is Trotsky. Trotsky was the head of the red army. It's, it's fascinating to, to watch how these intellectuals, Although even though, even though Stalin is very smart, he's not an intellectual. He understand, but he understands Marx. He he he's actually, but he doesn't act like an intellectual, right? He acts like a like a crime boss, and that's really what this is about. I mean, these are gangs, right? These are kind of organized gangs, and he essentially winds up running this organized gang, which is the, the communist party. And, um, he's, he's now the documentaries you'll see, well, they'll basically tell you that he's the one that's responsible for the industrialization of Russia. And while that is partially true, it doesn't happen without the United States and it doesn't happen without the corporations in the United States investing in Russia because they want to control the economic expansion in Russia. And they also have some stake in the game with Stalin because he's a thug and politics secretly, they like thugs. And that's the role he plays. So uh, an interesting character. Now, one of the things that you won't often hear about what was going on at that time 
was the severe food crises. And the Kulaks were kind of like the middle class uh, in Russia. And they, they had these, these farms. They weren't big. They weren't like big agri. And there was a lot. There were probably about 100,000 Kulaks with families of maybe five or six, possibly more than 100,000. But that's a rough estimate. And they were responsible for producing most of Russia's grain and food, grain mostly wheat, right? Huge wheat production. And they were initially outside of the whole communist revolution. Cause remember now the communist revolution just took place in St. Petersburg and not even Moscow. What happens is that Lenin um, moves the headquarters of the party from St. Petersburg to Moscow and that's where Moscow begins to really take off. So the, the revolution was really only like one city. And then there was, you know, there were these wars that were going on and the wars were with the white Russians, the Cossacks, and they were not into it. Right. So even after the revolution, there's a civil war that, that happens in Russia and Trotsky leads the red army with a million people, a million soldiers against the, the white Russians. Anyway, the Kulaks were, they were, they were responsible for the, for the grain. And as a result of that, right, they were, they were kind of essential, but they were also outside of the system. So what happens? Well, they decide that they're just going to go in and nationalize all the Kulak land and just take their shit which is not a good idea. It's very short-sighted because then there's nothing left for any of the quote-unquote kulaks or the peasants. So they begin to starve, huge famine. Now the troops and the, uh, you know, the intelligentsia of the, of the Bolshevik party, now they get to eat, they get their bread and their dumplings, right? Whatever other foodstuffs they're able to get. But the people themselves start to starve. So now they got a problem on their hands because the nationalization of everything is not working because there's no incentive. Do you see, this is the part, right? There's, there's no incentive for people to work. It's like, why should I work when I can't make a profit and you can't have a gun to everybody's head while you're doing the, uh, doing the work, right? You can't have that. So this is a little known part about the Russian revolution and that Lenin decides that, well, maybe we need to tweak the model a little bit well, why don't we allow the Kulaks to make some money and then we'll tax them because now they'll be incentivized to make money and we'll make money off of them. And within the party, that creates a big schism. Stalin doesn't like it. He's like, well, fuck that. You know, this is not how this thing is supposed to work. They're just supposed to go along with the party, but it does work for a while. And, What's really weird is that Stalin and Lenin begin to divert. Now, Stalin is Lenin's right hand. One of he probably he probably is Lenin's right hand man because he's the guy that can play the hatchet man. So you had this three headed monster: Stalin, Lenin, and Trotsky. And Trotsky and Lenin are rivals. And and uh, Lenin and Stalin is smarter because there's there's a 
this position, this is what Khrushchev had in the Communist Party, the general secretary. The general secretary was very, very powerful. And the reason why the general secretary was powerful is because the general secretary was in charge of communication. And if you were in charge of communication, then you could theoretically control what the party message was. And this is clearly the case of what was going on with Lenin, because Lenin has a stroke and he's still trying to rule the country from his bed. And so who does he turn to? He turns to Stalin to essentially um, enact his dispatches. And what does Stalin do? Changes the message. In Lenin, there was a document apparently where Lenin had written something and it was about reforming the party, right? It was about reforming the party because he was, he was seeing that their idea of full-on state-sponsored communism was not working, that the people, while they were clearly enthralled over the fact that they would have you know, maybe a better standard of living and would be out from under the yoke of any kind of monarchical rule. And by the way, so there, there are some, some very key pieces in all of this because uh, Nicholas's father was going to create great reform in Russia. He was going to make Russia this kind of democratic state and have a Congress and a Senate. Like, like he was setting all of that up. And then what happens? Well, he's fucking killed by the communists. They kill him. And so his youngest son is like so pissed off. He's like, fuck you. You know, we're not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue my father's work. You're assholes. And then he becomes very heavy handed, super heavy handed. And he runs Russia like a Bolshevik really. But you know, for the, you know, for the, for the royal family. And he had no problem cracking down on people that were radical, not no problem at all. Then he dies. And then his younger brother, Nicholas, who is a little soft, right? He, now he becomes the czar and Nicholas is not up to the task. And they know that they have an easy mark with Nicholas because, you know, he's kind of an intellectual and he likes to hunt but he's not really a, a military mind, right? So they've got their mark. They, they work through basically two layers of the, uh, of the, the, czar, the czar's family, the Romanovs, to get to Nicholas. And then they, they just, they work him, right? But what happens is that Lenin begins to see that there's a problem. And the problem is that they can't sustain the level of production without people being incentivized. Hey, what a concept, right? So he's actually prior to his, the weird thing about Russia is that every time they get to this level of reform, something happens, something weird happens. Like with Nicholas's father, he's going to go in, he's going to reform the country. What happens? He dies. He gets killed. It's a political assassination. And his son Nicholas's older brother is fucking pissed and he's a hard ass and he's like, fuck you. Right. So every time there seems to be some level of reform, something happens. Same thing happens with Lenin. Lenin is realizing this is working. He writes this document. He's, a, he's basically telling Stalin, look, we got to change the model. 
So the cool ox now were kind of, you know, borderline capitalists. They were paying money to the state because of the taxes, which wasn't a bad idea. I mean, so this is where Stalin was, Stalin was stupid. And he, he overestimated his ability to make people produce out of, out of fear for their lives, which is what he did. He wouldn't have been so successful without the United States. Anyway, he basically says to the Kulaks, fuck you. He changes Lenin's words. He doesn't deliver this document where Lenin is basically saying, we're going to go through reform now. He doesn't do that. He changes it because he's the one that's inserted himself. He's also, being that he's the general secretary, again, very powerful, you can change the the verbiage. You can change the, the documents. He also hired a bunch of yes men. That was, Stalin was politically just so astute. Again, he's a, he's a he's horrible human. Absolutely horrible. His daughter, he, apparently he did have a daughter. And his daughter said the, you know, the last uh, year or so of his life was, was terrible. Yeah, it's because he was having to live with the fact that he was a fucking butcher. And it started early. It wasn't like all of a sudden he just became, you know, head of the uh, Soviet Union and he turned, he turned sour. He was all, he was already sour. He already understood the power of violence and the threat of violence as a tool for political gain. So he takes the kulaks and he ships them off to Siberia. It's like fuck you, go, leave. But now, of course, they get to nationalize the land again. They get to the, but they keep having problems. Like there's just, they can't, they can't deal with the production on that level. So who saves them? The United States. The United States sends a bunch of wheat, keeps the, the Russians from uh, starving, and keeps them afloat because the United States has invested in manufacturing, right? And all the entire manufacturing process leads up to them being ready to go into World War II. So Stalin has 20 years to prepare for World War II. Think about that. So did he know that there was going to be a second World War? More than likely. Because they were ramping up. Now, theoretically, the Soviet Union would want to be a strong nation, right? Have all these arms. But there was a huge amount of investment in tanks, weapons, airplanes. And it was all under Stalin's watch. And uh, especially the tank part because the tank will play a major role in quelling any kind of uprisings in the future of the uh, Soviet Union, whether it's a place like um, Czechoslovakia or Hungary, right? They'll send the tanks in Poland, they'll send the tanks in and they'll put down the uprising. So the tank is an important role, but it also plays a huge role in the fight against the Germans. So Stalin has 20 years of ramp up time to deal with the Germans in the war whereas Hitler had 13. So that's seven years less of ramp-up time, which meant that the Soviet Union's uh, armaments were, they had a lot of them, plentiful. And they, they ultimately wind up winning the war, which is a, it's a weird war because at one point, Hitler and Stalin, you know, they had a non-aggression pact with each other. They weren't going to fight each other. And that changed. And nobody really knows why that changed. 
because it changes the, the the dynamic of the war, and it has to do with the fact that you know Hitler goes into Poland, Germany goes into Poland to take Poland. It's the same story, Poland, Ukraine. The relation between Poland and Ukraine goes back to the 1300s. And what's interesting about uh, Stalin and the Soviets is that they had their own model of conquest. And he's looking at he's looking at uh, Finland. He's going, shit, we should take Finland because St. Petersburg is right across from Finland. And they had theoretically they had the superior army. So they they just they they go into Finland. They're going to take them. The Finns kick their ass, and the reason they kick their ass is that number one, they were like, "You're not going to take our land." That's it. They're, so, you know, that's one of those things where you know, the country that's attacked has the moral authority. They have the moral authority, the moral high ground, and creation will fall in behind them. Generally speaking, unless of course the odds are just so overwhelming and you get the, the devil's merchants like the Rothschilds involved. And then what will they do? They'll fund both sides. And usually um, one side gets funded a little bit more than the other. And that's usually the side that wins. Of course, the Rothschilds, they're the ones that profit off of it. But Stalin and the Red Army got their ass kicked in Finland because the Finns had a great defense system. They're also marksmen, which, by the way, comes up all the time. All the time. When you, whenever you look at any of these wars, it's the country that has the in those kinds of wars, right? The the shoot 'em ups, kinetic wars with the shoot 'em ups. It's the country that has the best marksmen. They're the ones who usually win in those wars because number one, they're more accurate. They'll use less ammo, right? And number two, they they'll deplete the other side faster. Now, there's a case to be made where injuring the other side is more um, effective because you have to use more resources on getting them well. But in a case like that, if somebody was injured, more than likely they just kill them. Like that would probably be Stalin's command. Just kill him. He was like that. If you, if you uh, ran in the other direction during a war or you didn't fight, you were killed. He would often do that with his uh, generals. He'd replace his generals on the Russian front, he'd bring him back and he'd shoot him. And he'd shoot him before everybody. He'd, he'd shoot, this is what happens. If you don't fight, you don't fight to the very last man, you'll die. And Stalin was on the ground. He did fight in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, World War I. But then he comes back. So it's not like he doesn't have any kind of, uh, you know, relationship with the battlefield, because he does. But, um, yeah, just it, it, in a lot of ways, I would say in a lot of ways, Stalin is, is um, more interesting than Hitler in terms of that kind of dictatorial power. Because Hit, Hitler obviously is operating within the, the vacuum and the void, the moral vacuum and the moral void of what happens post-World War I. Right. And he takes advantage of that. He takes advantage of the high inflation, extremely high inflation. Uh, he takes advantage of the moral degeneracy of what was going on uh, with the Germans at that time and points a finger at the group that is supposedly responsible for that. So he's able to generate 
um, a lot of momentum. And there's a Machiavellian side to Hitler, but not as much as Stalin. You know, Stalin doesn't have the same kind of financial, moral, and social cudgel that Hitler has. So Stalin moves in and is able to navigate through that system and through the force of his will, through him being a complete sociopath and kill anybody that he needed to, and through his um, ingenious way of gaming the system, he rises to power. And then, of course, he gets all of this attention from the American industrialists, which, which no doubt help him. And he becomes... Out of, out of everybody in World War II, and we're including somebody like Churchill. Churchill takes a backseat to Stalin. And, and, you know, there are all people that love Churchill. And, you know, he was such a tough English bulldog. He was a fucking drunk. You know, Churchill was a drunk. And he was, he had a, um, he had a dubious sexual background. Let's put it that way. And then you have Roosevelt who is a commie and, you know, he's in a wheelchair, right? Then you have the American generals and you have the Gaulle, who's supposedly the French hero. And then you have, you know, some of the English generals, but out of world war two, the one person who emerges as, in a lot of ways, the hero of world war two is Stalin. And I don't think he's heroic, but he's a winner, right? The Soviet union wins that war with a lot of help from the Americans. Americans don't get involved in the war until 1945, by the way. Like the war is well underway. It's been on, underway for a long time. And it, and it takes Pearl Harbor to get the Americans involved. It's just a bizarre thing, right? And then of course, you know, we're ramping up production between 45 and 47 and the war pretty much ends in 47. So we're really only there for about two years. Um, just, like the, just like World War I, you know, we're there for what? Maybe one year, one and a half years, two years max. And that's it. So we're dragged into these global conflicts, really towards the end of the global conflicts. So anyway, um, Russia, as we know, it would have been much different. The Soviet Union, as we know, would have been much different had somehow Lenin stayed alive because he saw that the system wasn't working. And Stalin being the complete sociopathic reprobate that he was and in the position to undermines communication didn't come through with the messaging anyway we're going to get into more of the past we get into the present as well let's see how you are and what you're doing okay we have who do we have here checking in we got kelly b good morning kelly i hope you like today's song there's ryan international woodworkers of the world what's going on ryan empath how are you we got sony jj uh, Beverly Wise, wish I could step into that picture, see what they're looking at. Uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, who do we have here? Fran, what's going on, Fran? Miss CC Jones. There's my man TJ. What's going on, Tom? Kylie M, good morning to you. Hucklebuck411. There's my man Mark. Thor by the door. There's Mr. Steve. What's going on, Steve? So this Friday, on the Friday forecast, I think we're going to have uh, Russ Winter will be on for an hour. We'll talk about what's going on in Europe from his perspective. And I got another hour to fill, 
And I have some ideas about who I might fill that with, but we know that Russ Warner will be with us. Also, I do want to mention that I am uh, looking at a summer meetup here in Texas on July 2nd. And it will be where I live here in Fredericksburg. And it will be the Chataria meetup. And that's M-E-A-T-U-P, meetup. And we're going to have a big barbecue here with lots of meat. Yes, you'll probably get some of it. So I'm going to have details on that. It's going to be um, super user-friendly. It, it's mainly for people in Texas. But if you're not from Texas, you want to come here, you're welcome to come. You know, but um, the idea is that... Um, you know, I'm going to basically ask people to pay $25 to help pay for food. And that's it. Like you got, you got to figure out where you're going to stay. I'm not going to take care of that. Um, yeah, I, you might be able to put up some tents here. I got a lot of land, Well, not a lot of land, but we could put up tent city for a couple of days, but that, that'll be the plan. So that's going to be on the weekend of July 2nd, um, July 2nd, the third is a Sunday and the fourth is a Monday. So we'll do the, we'll do the meetup on Saturday and uh, it'll be $25 and that'll allow me to buy um, enough food for everybody and maybe get another grill or two so we can have enough grilling power to uh, provide food. So that'll be something to look forward to, especially if you're in Texas and you want to show up here. Um, and I'm giving you enough time so that if you want to get a room in the area and there are plenty of Airbnbs, and we know that you 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 are now on the clock to do that. So I'll make an official announcement sometime this week. It'll be the chart, the uh, Chataria meetup, M E A T U P. I think a lot of people like that. Uh, let's see, who do we have here? Maurice, what's going on? Oh man, Don has nine dogs and seven cats. That sounds like a reality series. Hi, Maurice. Good to see you. Miss Nakia, what's going on? Good to see you. Who else do we have? Oh, it's Hucklebuck's birthday today. Right on. Happy birthday, Hucklebuck. Yeah, Jasper's a titty kitty. Let's see. Should we play a birthday song for Hucklebuck? We'll do it before the show's over. Your last Friday forecast was brilliant. Is there a copy of it? Or is it lost down the YouTube black hole? It is lost down the YouTube black hole. And I found out, by the way, why I got a community. I got a strike. Apparently, I had COVID misinformation. D did I even talk about COVID? You know, I'm usually pretty good remembering what I talk about. I can't even really remember talking about COVID at all. And if I did talk about it, it might have been in some reference with, um, you know, the, the emissary from uh, Dark City. Yuval Harari, Yuval Noah Harari. It's a bunch of bullshit. Um, let's see, who else do we have here? Hola Damore coming to a country near you. That was on Stalin's watch. That was one of Stalin's hatchetmen, Kaganovich. Another one of his hatchmen was Molotov. You want to know where the word Molotov cocktail comes from? Yeah, it's from a guy named Molotov. So not only did Stalin have yes-men, he had sociopathic yes-men. All right. 
Um, everybody, welcome. Thanks for being here. Let's uh, let's get into some of these headlines, and I do want to talk about what I think is the the path. So I keep trying to figure out how do we. So I'm looking around. Okay, we're watching this global car wreck happen. Like it's happening before our very eyes. We can see it, right? It's all happening. It's in slow motion, but it's happening fast enough so that it's impacting us. And I've talked about this before. I think I started to talk about this a long time ago, actually. That when COVID hit, we were watching 9-11 frame by frame by frame by frame. And we're still there. And I, I remember, who was it? It was, it was one of these... Uh, YouTube talk shows and somebody was bringing that up in that way. And they were talking about, Oh my God, that's so fucking genius. Yeah. Oh my God. That makes so much sense. Jasper, how come you never say that when I say that? Huh? Anyway. Um, but that's where we are. We're watching it all happen in real time. So, we have enough time theoretically to respond because it's not like you, we have an, you know, an, uh, an, an, you know, a BC and an AD moment, although that is coming, right. We're having kind of many versions of that January 6th, uh, November 6th, which is when the election was right. So these are those many moments, Three eleven. 2020, another mini moment. Um, 52520, 20, George Floyd, another moment. So we have these moments, and we're seeing this collapse happen before our very eyes. We're we're watching the infestation and the degeneration of, of the system through the rainbow-haired um mafia, which is kind of mind-blowing just watching how these teachers are so upfront about what their agenda is and their agenda is ultimately to rape your child's minds rape them and then get them to flip their sex that's their agenda it, it really doesn't get more complicated than that and it seems to be a uh it seems to be a coordinated effort. So how, do, how does it get coordinated? That's the question. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to, all right, so these teachers are, let's say they're in their um, late 20s. We'll say late 20s. Maybe around uh, 28, 29, maybe 30. That's going to make them sort of late millennials. Maybe some of them are a little bit older. So if we go back, let's say they're, let's just say they're 30 years old. Some of them are younger, by the way, but let's say they're 30 years old. We go back um, to when they were 15, which was 15 years ago. So 20 years ago, that takes us to uh, 2002, right? That's 20 years ago. And then we'll take um, five years off of that, 
And that takes us to uh, 1997. 1997, and they're 15 years old, and what are they doing? Right. They're in school, and they're part of these after-school groups, which are just starting up, and they are essentially advocating LGBTQ, right? It's the after-school queer clubs. That's what's going on. So it's not just from, say, 1997. We can go 98, 99, 2000, right? 2001, you know, this five-year stretch where these teachers are being groomed. They're being groomed. They're being groomed in high school by a whole other group that's older than they are. And then what happens? Well, inside of those groups, number one, they're targeted and they're probably turned out, right? They're turned out. And then they are politically activated. And then through, I believe, a concerted and covert effort, they are brought into the university system and they are groomed to do exactly what they're doing. So, you know, it's just like the cycle of abuse. You know, why do people abuse other people? They abuse other people because they've been abused. Joe Stalin was completely abused by his father. So what does he do? He's going to abuse the fuck out of people. You know, what would happen if Joe Stalin had had a, a decent upbringing? He wouldn't have been the man that he was. Although, he, again, I looked at his chart. The guy's got kind of a significant chart. So you have these young people that are being groomed. They're in that weird metamorphic phase where, you know, they're in the chrysalis. They get people to go in. They begin to hijack. And I'll never forget one time, a long time ago, it was when I was on Blog Talk Radio, and I was talking about some of this stuff. And there was this, this guy on who came into the chat room and he was admonishing me, like, well, why are you being so, you know, difficult on people like myself? I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about it. So I started to do this dialogue with him live. And so I got him to admit that he was 15 years old and he had sex with an older man. And the reason why he did that was because it was the easiest, easiest path for him to have sex. Because when you go into the courtship between a young man and a young woman, especially during that time, it's less so this time, although there are still some of those things involved, you're dealing with issues like power. And what do young women or women in general aspire towards? They aspire towards somebody who has power. So in high school, who has power? It's the captain of the football team. It's uh, the school president, right? It is sometimes, sometimes power can, you know, be dark power. It could be the bad boy, you know, the, the person who is most likely to go to prison. That's a form of power. Sometimes, you know, when you get into like male youth and power and outside of, uh, you know, male youth who can't do sports, what do they do? They join a band. A lot of guys who are in bands 
are in bands because they can't do sports. I mean, that's, that was kind of how it worked. Not all of them. Some of them were into bands because they liked music and they wanted to perform that. And that's, but a lot of them were like, you know, I can't, I'm not very good at football. I'm not very big, but I can't play guitar and I can't join a band and girls like that. It's power, right? So there are power dynamics involved. And for a certain group of young males that are outside of those power dynamics and don't want to play that game, that socialized game, then what happens? Well, they're looking around and saying, well, I've got all these crazy hormones and I need to like get my rocks off, but I don't want to play this game. How does, how does it happen? Oh, this older guy over here, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll do what I want him to do or, you know, whatever that is. Right. And this is what happened with this guy. And that's what happened. He got turned out in high school and really didn't look back. And I'm not saying that that's what happens to everybody, but I've, it's in there. It's kind of baked in there. And so, you know, what we can see in terms of these, these activists inside of the school system is that in a lot of ways, they were already groomed. And we can move that forward. It doesn't just have to be the latter millennials. It could be early Gen Z, right, who at this time are around 26. And I guarantee you some of these teachers are early Gen Z. They're getting the same treatment. They're going to these, you know, they're born in what, 1996, 1997. So let's see, uh, 10 years out, that's 2007. Uh, five years out from that, that's uh, 2012. A lot of these groups are very active. So they get to plug in and they are groomed. And not only are they groomed, but some of them are plucked and like, okay, you are going to be politically valuable to us, right? This is what happens. So that's what we're dealing with, with, with this infiltration and infestation of our society. And that's just part of it. You know, you can see also that we don't make anything. We, it, that all got taken out to China or Korea or Mexico or Bangladesh or Thailand or Vietnam, right? I mean, we don't make anything. That's a problem. Now they're going to shut down coal and gas and oil. And that's a problem too, right? So we, we see all these things that are happening now and they're, they're systemic. So we're watching this whole collapse happen before our very eyes. The money system sending a shit ton of money to Ukraine, which is insane. Somebody should do a takeoff on uh, Cypress Hill, insane in the membrane. They could have U Ukraine in the membrane. Because that's what it is. Ukraine in the membrane. Another fucking money laundering system. Billions of dollars. Okay, we can't do any more COVID relief. So let's do Ukraine relief. Let's send them some money. And all these people that are running these charities to send Ukraine money. It's like, wake the fuck up. Wake the fuck up and, and wake the fuck up from your virtue signaling. It's bullshit. Your little Ukrainian flag. I was watching uh, uh, this guy, Kent, what's his name? I forget his, Kent Rollins. He seems like a nice guy. He's from Oklahoma. He's got 2 million subscribers on YouTube. He's a cowboy cook. And he's doing, you know, relief shit for Ukraine. And, you know, saying a prayer for all our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Kent, 
stick to fucking cowboy food. Okay. You don't, you don't have to virtue signal. Now, I don't think he feels like he has to virtue signal, but somewhere deep down inside, Kent Rollins, he's going to virtue signal because every time he signs off on his program, I want to take my hat off to the servicemen and women and the fine officers and the firemen of our first responders. I want to thank, that's fine, right? But that's a psychological operation too. It's like, yeah, let's, co let's cozy up to our oppressors. And that is a virtue signal. He may believe that, whatever. But that allows him to, you know, stay within the good graces. Even the virtue signal with Ukraine allows him to stay in the good graces of, uh, of YouTube. Oh, we like Kent, Kent Rollins. Yeah, he's a, he's a very useful dupe. Sorry, I'm being a little, a little edgy today. But it's true, right? So what do we do? So this is, I, I spend the majority of my time thinking about what can we do? We have a couple of options. We can just watch the entire thing go to shit, which I've talked about. Like you have to let it go and watch it go to shit, right? But even though that's happening, who are you going to be and what is your life going to be like after it completely goes to shit? And I use the metaphor of when I had to let go of my van and watch it crash into that car. I used that metaphor before. But who are you going to be after that? You're going to go, okay, well, now what do we do? That's not really going to work. It's not going to work. And this whole idea of social reform vis-a-vis -vis the World Economic Forum and all these young global leaders, like they have a system in place. They have an organizing principle. They have uh, the, uh, the, the media as part of their... Um, apparatus, right? The media plays a huge role in being able to spread their message for the greater good. And that's going to be the solution to the future. Universal basic income will not work. It won't work. Even China understands this. This is why China is slaughtering half of Shanghai because China knows that in order for their system to be able to continue to evolve, that they cannot de-incentivize people. You cannot socially program people to the point where they're fucking robots, or you may as well just have a robot. And maybe the Chinese are more susceptible to being robotic, and I do think in some ways they are. And I apologize to anybody who's Chinese out there who's listening to this. This is not really me meant in that way. But if you look at what happened with Mao during the Great Purge, what does he do? He wipes out the intellectuals. He wipes out anybody who can be a threat. That is a genocidal purge. So they remove any future threat. So what happens? Now you've got a bunch of people who are willing to do what you'll say, which, which means that they'll kill people. And that's what happened like his version of the youth brigade and the red guard are the ones that are killing people. So they'll do what they're told. And then the people that are left over are traumatized and docile. And, and what happens then? Well, they make good robots, don't they? Just like in the United States, people are becoming better robots because of the programming.
that, but you can't run UBI. You can't create a virtual video game and incentivize people. It's not going to work. Even though you have 20 years worth of video game programming and kids leveling up and doing this and doing that, it's not going to work because it's synthetic and it doesn't feed the core of who we are, which is where God wants to become manifest through physical work through physical application. And this is what Ted Kaczynski was talking about in a roundabout way. It's not going to work. So you can have a UBI period for a while. Like maybe you could have it for two years, maybe three years, because that's usually what happens with these systems when they flip. They get about a two-year run, and there's a lot of fervor. There's a lot of froth. There's a lot of zeal. And then it goes, just like that, right? It goes right over the edge because you can't sustain that. You know, you, you know, you can have kind of the, you know, the, the charge of overthrowing a system, but it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. And this is what the communists figured out because in order for that to be sustainable, they had to continue the revolution and make it a global effort. And they had to show their people, see, we are succeeding in not just being a revolutionary force within our own country, but a revolutionary force planetarily. Our system is superior. So people had to be reminded that their system was superior and they had to do it because they had to flip these countries. And when they cease to be able to flip the countries, and by the way, globalism did, did defeat communism. I'm not saying capitalism did, but globalism did. Then they looked around and said, geez, we're up against it. And ultimately, the communists and Khrushchev, they lost out because they didn't have technology. That the West out-technologized them. They did. The West out-technologized them. And the Soviets, they understood it. They, they were checkmated. And when the United States was able to plant a McDonald's inside of Russia, pre-fall pre of the wall, it was over. The greatest weapon, and I said this before, the greatest weapon against global communism was globalism. Not capitalism, but globalism. Even the Chinese got it. The Chinese, they got a, a McDonald's in China right around the same time the Russians did. The Chinese looking around like, yeah, we should probably play that game. But let's make it state-sponsored capitalism. But you can't sustain that. Because if you have a cross-section of your society that is gaining in financial wealth and gaining in social prestige and power, what do you have? You have a group that theoretically can experience more autonomy. This gets back to Kaczynski, that autonomy is part of the power process. And in that system, you cannot have autonomy. So what do they have to do? They have to call the system every now and then. And that's what we're seeing. We're watching them call the system. And they're taking away their familiars like cats and dogs. They're not even going to eat them. Who knows? They may. They may turn them into, you know, cat food and dog food for Americans. Yeah, that, that could easily happen. We might get the purged animals of Shanghai. Quite possible. You should buy good food for your cats. Anyway, 
So what do we do? Right? Do we just let this thing just completely go off the rails and watch it? Go, wow, look at that. This thing's really fucked up. And it's going to fucking collapse. Yeah, in some ways, if the piano that you're moving is going to fall, you better get out of the way of the fucking piano. And I think that's part of it. Is there something that we can do? Is there an organizing principle that we can have that allows us to connect into a better version of this world? And I keep going through that in my head. And I would say, yes, there is. There is a better organizing principle. And a lot of it has to do with the thumbnail for today's show. So I was rooting around the biblical line this weekend. And you have Noah, who is this biblical father, right? Like all these lines come out of Noah. Ultimately, like David comes out of Noah. Abraham comes out of Noah. So you have these three sons of Noah, which are Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And what's interesting is that the depiction of Ham and Shem are dark. They're like dark people in terms of the depiction of those two sons. And then the depiction of Japheth is not dark. And the depiction of people that come out of the tribe of Japheth are more light-skinned, right? So this is kind of an interesting story of the, you know, the, the sort of these root races that emerge out of the three sons of Noah. And, you know, there's astrotheology that goes into this. It's another part of the story, which I'm not going to get into right now. And I think it's an interesting part of the story, but I don't think it's the entirety of the story. So where, where does, where does Japheth land? Let's just take a look at Japheth, by the way. Now, what's really interesting, when you look up Japheth, you'll see like Japheth the goat, and which is a character, I guess, in some video game. So let's just do a quick little... So we can see this is an interesting, like, so supposedly Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? And these are the people that emerge from these so-called various tribes and the sons of Noah. And it's got like maps and all this stuff, right? Here they are. This is the depiction of the three of them. Not looking very much like that other depiction, but this is a more kind of classical depiction. So we have uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Now, supposedly, Japheth is the father of the Aryans or the Aryan race, right? Supposedly. And then you have his other brothers who are the fathers of these other root races. So, the idea here is that Japheth goes from Iberia to Ireland or Albion, right? Now, 
is there a connection between Albion and Albany and Albania and albino? That's an interesting question, possibly. You know, is Japheth the albino son of Noah? Now, there's some, there's, there's a whole school of thought that Noah himself is an albino in that he does not look like, you know, his, his bro brothers and sisters, and he has red hair, right? So, you know, are we talking about Albion, Albino, Albany, Albania? Possibly. I mean, there are connections to the rewards, right? So Japheth winds up settling in Albion. Albion being Ireland. Ultimately, that was the name of it originally. It was Albion. And in Albion, he has sons. And one of his sons is, I talked about this last night, is Gog. So let's look at Japheth's sons. Actually, it's Magog. He's got Magog, Gomer, who's another um, important figure. Javan, Tubal, where we get Tubal Cain from the Freemasons, uh, Madai, Tiris, Turk. Right. So let's. But we want to look at Magog, particularly. It's funny because uh, Putin is is being likened to Magog. The second of the seven sons of Japheth mentioned in the table of nations in Genesis 10. The origin of the term is now clear. This name indicates either a person or a tribe or geographical reality, country or city. In the book of Ezekiel, the pagan Magog people live north of the world, metaphorically represent the forces of evil, which associates with apocalyptic traditions. Anytime they're ta ta telling you about the forces of evil, you need to look at it and say, is that really true? The origin of the name Magog is unclear. It may come from the Akkadian Matgugi, land of Gog, is the land of Gygus Lydia. So Gog and Magog become separated out of Magog, who is the son of Japheth, right? So Magog is apparently a giant, the monster of Gog and Magog. So Magog or is a giant. That's who he is. And what happens in Albion is that they create a race of giants. And that 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 descendancy of the giants goes all the way into the you know the the great Irish giant who winds up in the British Museum of Science, which we've talked about on the show. He's he's kind of the last. And there's this whole area of Ireland where these giants, at that time, the giants were probably around seven foot five, seven foot six. And his name was um, Byrne. I believe it was uh, Edward Byrne, the great Irish giant. And 
so there was a whole area of Ireland where these giants, he had cousins who were giants, right? So there were giants there in, in Ireland. And theoretically, they are the offspring of Magog. And there were, of course, he had other, other uh, sons there. But what's interesting about this is that there's also a story of Brutus. And Brutus winds up going to Albion where they are engaged in a battle with the giants. And they, they are essentially giant slayers. And Brutus winds up going to the island next to Albion, which we know as England and Scotland. And the word Britain is derived from the name of Brutus. And the Brutus is the founder of Britain, right? So there's a very interesting cosmology that goes it goes into this. And so if we go back and we look at you know, this whole idea of Japheth and his brother Shem and Ham and these the offspring, and particularly Magog, and the whole the whole idea is that you know Japheth mates with these you know these spirit beings, which I find hard to believe. And I, I would think that quite possibly Noah and Ham and Shem and Japheth were probably giants. I think they were probably giants and that the ark that was built and, you know, they theoretically have all the measurements and everything was probably massive, a massive ark so that they could house these giants. And, you know, they wind up populating parts of Europe and Eurasia Right. So they give birth to what giant kids. And when we look at these older versions of Tartaria, what do we see? We see these massive buildings with doors that should not be built for, you know, the wee people. They don't have any, any value, any purpose. And all you got to do again, if you're in Nashville, just go to the Parthenon in Nashville. Go look at the door in the Parthenon. It is massive. And it's made out of, um, uh, it's made out of iron. It's like a big fucking iron door. Like, how do you move that thing? And even the steps of the Parthenon, they're, they're much bigger than the steps of an average human. Like you have to, you know, I'm six foot three and I had to kind of reach to get up to the next step. And you go into the Parthenon and it's huge got these big vaulted ceilings and huge columns. Like, why? Why build that for the World's Fair? Why bang out a, an iron door? It's an iron door like that. Wouldn't have been just easier to do like a wooden door? Yeah, it would have been easier. Just make a fake fucking iron door. Make it look like a, an iron door. You get the wood, you stain the wood, you beat it up a little bit, and it's a wooden door that looks like an iron door. It's passable for a world's fair. Why make an iron door? So a lot of these structures were built for very big people. And this is what a lot of the um, Tartarian mythos is about. Now, there's also, and it was really weird because I was, I was reading this, um, some of the stuff I just like burned through. 
and I don't save the, I don't bookmark some of this stuff, but I was reading this one and maybe I did, but I was reading through this one account of various species of people on the planet. And some of the accounts of these species are fucking weird. I mean, really, there's like a whole species of Cyclops beings, people with one eye. There's another species of people that have um, a small mouth and they can't eat anything unless it's through a straw. There's another uh, being a species of people that are really um, very light sensitive and they have to live in shaded and jungle area, jungled areas, right? So this whole idea that we were like just kind of one species, even that is doesn't go along with some of these narratives and descriptions of who was populating the planet at a period of time. So what are we talking about? We're talking about not just diversity between like Sham, uh, Shem and uh, Ham and Shem and Japheth and those tribes, right? Those people. We're talking about diversity of species in a way that we can't even really begin to understand. You know, we're talking about chimera species. I mean, the, the, this planet was a really weird place at one point. And all those stories about chimeras, they're all real. They're not just mythologies. They're real, right? So the, we lived in a very unusual place. And, and, and yet there was diversity like you wouldn't believe, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. It was so, so incredibly diverse. But if we come through these three lines, like Shem and him and Japheth, right, there are very interesting kind of organizing principles within each of those family lines. You know, it's very, it's fascinating. So as a result of that, right, we have this diversity. And theoretically, it leads us back to you know, quite possibly one progenitor. And each of those manifestations of that line have their own, their own myths, their own organizing principles, their own ways of, you know, dealing with the realm. And some of them are actually fairly interesting, noble and enlightened. Right. And ultimately I think it leads to what we call Tartaria and the technology of Tartaria and this, I'd say last iteration of what I'd call tribal diversity. And I've brought up the, the uh, Cherokee quite a bit because they're the manifestation of that, right? So they, the reason I'm talking about this is because perhaps, and I'm not saying that this is the way, but perhaps through this connection with these tribes and with these bloodlines and with their own particular manifestation of divinity, that there are organizing principles for us. And that if we align with those organizing principles, that not only do we have something that is valid and empowering, right? But can even move us into the next story of being here in this realm, which is, again, I believe a massively stepped down version of 
what this place once was. So in terms of Japheth and Magog and all those other brethren of Japheth, you, you have, you know, the Irish, you know, the Irish race and the Irish contingency, and you have things like literature and, um, you know, sailing, all these things are part and parcel of that culture. Right? I'm not taking away anything from the other progenitors of, 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 uh, Noah, again, this is all conceptual. It's all a model, right? But it's something that feels connected to me. So I think we all have some kind of duty or responsibility to tap into, you know, those memory banks in our gene pool where, you know, it is a faint and distant light of, you know, where we descended from and who we descended from. Because theoretically, we all descended from giants. Well, most people. Right? And what do they do? They want to make us smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And smaller. Now they want to take away meat and what will happen with that? Well, you get on a bug diet, you get on a grain diet, plant-based diet, what will happen? You'll shrink. That's what happened. Once they got people on a plant-based diet in agriculture, which is really in a lot of ways the, uh, the, the end of a particular story with agriculture and urbanization, people begin to shrink. They get smaller. They have less of an individual will. They, they're, they're addicted to the opioids of wheat production and gluten. And they become much more malleable and much more um, tameable as a result of this. Now, perhaps people were, I don't know, living off of, you know, etheric juice or something like that. That's possible, right? And that this whole meat thing is just kind of a byproduct of a fallen age. Maybe. But we do know that there was a huge push for agronomy. And when agronomy came in, it wiped out the hunter-gatherer system. And you had numbers. You had hordes. And the hunter-gatherers were individuals. And so you had the hordes wiping out the individual. Gee, what does that sound like? Kind of sounds like where we are now. Right. You have all these people on plant based diets because they think it's better for them and better for the planet. And it's the, the re um, it, is, it is the reseeding of the agricultural mind. You know, it's animal farm. And that's what's going on. And they want to, again, do this thing where they wipe out the hunter gatherers. They want to wipe out people that have this idea that they're they're, they're they have an individual consciousness. Because they need to have people that are going to be part of this new thing. But again, if they run the new thing and they run the UBI, it's not going to last. No matter what, even with all the social engineering, even with all the, the vaccines and, you know, all the shit in the water and all the frequencies and all the food change, you're not going to be able to completely social engineer people. Even with 20 years worth of getting people hooked on video games and leveling up and thinking that reality is just a video game and you do these things, you'll get more credits. It's not going to work. 
because somewhere you're always going to have mutants. You're always going to have people that are not going to be a part of the system. There's going to be people that will slip through the cracks, <laughs> which is one, why they want to create. That's why they want to control procreation, by the way, because they don't want the mutants to slip through the cracks. You know, they don't want a JPEF to slip through the cracks or a NOAA to slip through the cracks. They want to control every facet of the game from birth to life to death, and even maybe even after death. Right? So, you know, what do we do here? How do we get through this time and look at the absolute and utter collapse of the system that we're in? Because we're watching it. And nobody's going to come along and save the day. I don't think Putin is. I don't think Trump is. You know, Trump is pumping uh, Mehmet Oz. Guess what? The MAGA people are not into Mehmet Oz. They don't like him. They don't like the fact that all of a sudden he's a Johnny come lately. He's part of the, you know, one of these world economic forum influencers. People are smelling, they're sniffing through this bullshit very quickly now. And, you know, whoever Trump is, whoever is backing Trump thinks that they can just roll him out here and they, he can, you know, get behind somebody and it's going to be the papal, seal of approval. That's not true because Trump damaged a lot of his support when he went full on vaxxed and just started pumping up the vaxes afterwards. He damaged a lot of support because of what he did with January 6th or not dealt with, with January 6th. You know, what did he do before he, uh, before he left office. You know, Trump never once, never once named Black Lives Matter as a terrorist organization. He threatened it maybe once. He never did. He never named Antifa a terrorist organization, although he did threaten Antifa more than once. Never did. Why? Why didn't he just say, look, this is a terrorist organization. We're putting them on the terrorist watch list of the FBI. He didn't do that. So they wreaked all this havoc and yeah, maybe we get to see their true colors. Now Patrice, Patrice true colors um, is showing us that it was just a, you know, a scam. Are they going to give their money back? No, they're not going to give the money back. They got their little mansions and, you know, they're still going to have their little minions running their little scam. And at some point in the future, when enough people have forgotten about that, they were just rip off artists. They'll do it all over again. So Trump doesn't do any of that, but what does he do at the end of his term? He pardons a couple of rappers. He pardons Kodak Black and the guy who was involved with uh, Death Row Records, Suge Knight's partner. He pardons them. What does he do to the January 6th people? Nothing. So you wonder why people don't have any, any faith in Trump. It's because of shit like that. Like, dude... You kind of fucked up. And so now when you go out and you're, you're backing Mehmet Oz, oh, really? Well, good luck with that. So what is the option? Is the option to vote Democrat? That's not a very good option, is it? Or voting in general, probably not a very good option either. So what do you do now, right? What do we do? Well, we're... we're we're really at this nascent point. Like we're in this kind of dark embryonic stage 
where we realize this old world is dead. It's come to a conclusion. And if we don't realize that, they're going to let us know again and again and again. And so we have to go deeper. We have to go deeper into our DNA. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. You got to do it. And somewhere in there, we have a connection. We have a tribal connection through primal intelligence and a relationship with the world and the energy of the world and the systems of the world that are not fallen. Like, for instance, electricity is a fallen version of the etheric energy that was available at one point in time. Electricity is a degraded version of it. Yeah, we get all this technology and shit, but we also get all the, you know, the, the, the perils of electricity too. Electricity is not really all that safe. And every time we've had an iteration of electricity, we've had some kind of, you know, major um, variant of a plague of some sort, which we've talked about before. So there is a form of energy that was way more organic and way more um, analog and way more available. And along with it, an entire infrastructure that not just one group benefited from. And I think when you look at the, these narratives of like, you know, the, the Moors and the Moors in Africa and the redheaded giants and all these other groups, right? They, they, I think they all commingle and are part of this same narrative. And it's a narrative that predates a lot of the other um, so-called narratives that, you know, are passed along as history. And then it gets really weird, right? Because there are historical records. There are stories that depict certain things that are happening during certain times. And those are outside of the, the, uh, the printing press of Formenko. And not Formenko, but Scaliger, whom Formenko talks about. So how do we reconcile these two versions of history that's a really interesting question and one that I don't necessarily have an answer for, although we could attribute it to potentially different timelines as well, which I have no problem with. Okay, so we went big today. We started to talk about, you know, Stalin and communism and how ultimately that doesn't work to where we are now in a system that ultimately will not work unless they control the means of everything, including procreation. Because you can't have the variables. You can't have the variance. You can't have the mutant that says, this doesn't work for me. This does not work for me. The reason it doesn't work for me is because I'm not getting anything out of it. Just look at the past. Every time they've tried to do this with the past, it doesn't fucking work. Didn't work for Cuba. Cuba wouldn't have been shit unless the Soviets took them under their wing and subsidized you know, their production. And they're still being subsidized. Who's subsidizing them now? That's the big question. Is it China? Is it the United States? They're still being subsidized. This is what happens. Because production is something that is important. And people theoretically have to be able to profit off of production. Um, you know, capitalism bled into globalism which really has been the downfall of capitalism in a lot of ways. But there is a there there. And even fucking Lenin realized this. 
I said, yeah, let's incentivize the Kulaks. Let's tax them. That way we can make money off of them. But that wasn't good enough for the hardline Bolsheviks. Like particularly Stalin, he wanted the Kulaks under their thumb or under his thumb. But it doesn't work. Ultimately, it doesn't work. All right. So I ask you individually, what are you going to do? You know, and how, how do we as individuals link up with the mystery of our DNA, the connection to our tribal brethren, whom at one point in time on this planet had a very sophisticated society, more sophisticated than we understand. And again, what timeline? Well, that's up to us to, to figure out. Because remember, last time when I was talking about 9-11, a lot of this stuff with Tartaria doesn't really exist until right around 2016, 2015, people start to really talk. Why is that? Is it because another timeline opened up and all of a sudden we can see it? And more of it's being revealed. It's an interesting question. And one, honestly, that I don't really have an answer for, and that's okay. All right. Thanks for being here. Um, we'll see you tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. Uh, start to think about the Tartarian, the Chatarian meetup in July. It'll be the weekend, July 2nd. And again, you just be a small fee for providing for food and drink, and you figure everything else out. Does that mean I won't have an event in October? Uh, no, that does not mean I won't have an event in October. This is for people that just want to get together and hang out. There's a lot of people in Texas that um, are connected, but not connected. So it'd be good. And if you're not from Texas or not, just you can come anyway, right? But we'll be doing that. And that means, you know, I mean, it could be a whole weekend thing. It's not like in Saturday, I'll kick you out. You know, we have Saturday and Sunday, you know, if you want to stay around, hang around, we can do a whole two-day thing. Well, plenty of food, I'm sure. And, you know, I'd like to get a live band and we can have some, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Maybe I can uh, coax uh, Johnny Cruz and Pete Seven to come out and debut their new, their new band. That'd be fun. All right. We'll see you tomorrow. Use your head in order to sum what's real. Your heart to sum what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take care and bye for now.